hey everybody it's been a while thank you for hanging in there thanks for checking this back out thank you for mike d for being so patient with uh, how long it took me to get this thing out uh, i will have another podcast up in a couple of days you know just basically talking about everything that's been going on and why it uh, took me so long to get back in the swing of things here but in the meantime uh, a couple of quick quick announcements from uh, our buddies uh, for over 45 years Ron and Dave's Lopez t- family tattoo has been providing quality tattooing and body piercing services in a friendly safe and sterile environment they're now also offering cosmetic tattooing in addition to their regular services. You can stop in and check out the shop at 603 Manor Road in Staten Island, or you can call them at 718-982-0100. Mother Pug Saloon, Staten Island's only punk rock dive, is located at 1371 Forest Avenue in Staten Island. Stop in, have a beer, check out a band. It's always a good time down there. JHU Comic Books are New York's premier comic book stores, serving the New York area since 1983. Uh, some great people in there. Two locations, JHU Comic Books in Manhattan is 481 3rd Avenue at the corner of 33rd. You can call that store at 212-268-7088. JHU Comic Books Staten Island is located at 299 New York Lane. Uh, right next to the New York Library, and you can reach that store at 718-351-6299. SD Screen Printing, specializing in printing custom clothing, workwear, sportswear, event tees, graphic designs, vinyl decals, and other merchandise. Uh, they're located at 75 Clinton Street on Staten Island. The phone number there is 347-552-2025. Uh, Or you can go to www.sdscreenprinting.net for a free quote. Uh, Keeping it pretty short here today because I just want to get back into it. Um, Thanks again for checking all this out. Um, If you're looking to get in touch with me, you can actually email me at johnfarig, uh, J-O-H-N-F-A-R-E-G, 1205 at gmail.com. All right, with that, here is Mr. Mike DiLorenzo. What's all this flower shit? Welcome to White House. Let's get to it, nerds. Mike DiLorenzo. Hello, Mr. Farry. How, How are, are you? you, sir? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm not unwell. Thank you. Thought that's good to hear. <laughs> so one thing I didn't know, we were just talking about this before, uh, was uh, you work at the Dario, you were saying? Yes. How, how did you land that? How did I land that? Um, well, before I worked at the Dario, I worked at Korg. And I worked there from <clears throat> 2003 to 2015. Um, I had known Daddario was in the same neighborhood on Long Island in, in Farmingdale and Melville as uh, Korg is because I had, I had an endorsement with them 
uh, well, my, yeah, I guess I, I was an artist for them when I first joined Kill Your Idols in 2003. So I was always back and forth over there. I, I had some pretty good relationships with some people there already. And then one of my favorite guys who worked at Korg, <clears throat> pardon me, one of the artist relations guys, Hugh Gilmartin, uh, had jumped ship and went to Daddario. And I was always like, fuck me. I was like, let me know whenever there's a job opening, please. And yeah. Literally like 10 years passed and, you know, we remained friendly, but... Um, I wanted out. I didn't want to work for Korg anymore. I won't get into the, the bullshit of it. But um, I was looking for new employment. And um, my sister-in-law, pardon me, Alanda, I uh, was like, why don't you go on LinkedIn? I'm like, ah, like I kind of, except for really like the Instagrams, I, I stay away from all things where people can find me. <laughs> you know? Like I just don't want to be found. Yeah, it was, I was kind of shocked that you're not on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, but. it's, and um it, so I, I went on on LinkedIn, and, and literally, like, w within a month or so, uh, I got a notification for a job that was in my wheelhouse as a distribution manager. And lo and behold, uh, this March will be five years that I'm there. Nice. Yeah. So you, you were going to tell me earlier, how did you get into, like, kind of the logistics end of I completely... Of hey! Let's Here he is. What's up, brother? Mr. Galvin. Hi. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having us. Hi, Brian. Home. Oh, yeah, but we're in Brian Galvin's house, this by the way. Beautiful. This is beautiful. Uh... Um, so, uh, I just kind of happened on it by, right. completely by accident. You know, I worked for Jim Hanley's for five or six years, uh, even after I had moved out to Long Island. And uh, I was taking the train from Lindenhurst to Midtown, uh, you know, three or four days a week and then driving into Staten Island one day a week to work there. And I just was kind of looking for something local, you know, to, to Long Island. And I uh, was going through the paper. And when I, was this, I, like 97, 98? This was 96. Oh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, I got a job with uh, a 3PL, a third-party logistics provider, um, just because. And uh, I started there, like, cold calling, which is... <laughs> Not my forte, yeah, yeah, whatsoever. And then I, I got really, I, I really liked booking the trucks, and I liked finding the providers and things like that. So I got more and more into the logistics end of it. Um, from there, I wound up becoming managing their office, and the company grew and moved to a bigger office. And I had started having people work under me, and and then um, through that. I I was kind of headhunted by a company in the Midwest, a, a big trucking company called Hogan. And, you know, I had a pretty good relationship with them. And they were like, do you want to come to work in St. Louis? I said, sure. <laughs> so I dropped everything and, and moved. And when was that? That was uh, 2000. Yeah, okay. 99. Is, uh, 99. So I had been with the other company for about three years and then... Took off to the Midwest for a few years and worked for that trucking company, and uh, I was I was dispatching trucks, and then I wound up being in charge of their entire West Coast team operation, which included uh, post office runs to the Pacific Northwest, which was a nightmare because it was during Christmas and it was during oh, storm wow. season, and yeah. I would get trucks stuck in ice storms and shit. It was just a nightmare, and then um, and then nine eleven happened, and I was out there. And that was 
a horror to just be so far away from, from so many people. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. And uh, I moved back in 2003, back to New York, and went back to the old logistics company. They took me back, and through there, I, uh, I found out there was an opening at Korg. Got the job at Korg, and now I'm at Daddario. Oh, awesome. Yeah. It's kind of a... Everyone kind of can a, wake up Kind now. of a twisty route. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I, I don't go in a straight line for anything. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Fuck. That's the best way, though, you know? <laughs> Especially because it wasn't like you were sitting around waiting for things to happen, you know? No, nah, I, mean? I was yeah. just trying to, you know. Yeah. My youngest sister, she's she's 19 now, my, my youngest sister, uh, Ariana. She's very smart. When she was 13 around, she was already telling me what she was getting ready to do. And I was like, I'm 42, and I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. You know, it's just one of those things. You know, I just just kind of going. I found something I was pretty okay at, and I right. just stuck with it. Fortunately enough, for the last <clears throat> whatever it is, where 16 years, I've been able to do it under the musical instrument uh, industry yeah. blanket. And, so that's pretty helpful. Do you do you find that like it makes work easier since even though you're doing a uh, you know, I mean, logistics is kind of a technical job. Like, yeah. um, do you find that it makes work easier doing a technical job for something you're really interested in? Oh, sure, absolutely. It, it's actually it actually works to your detriment a little bit. I'm more so a Korg because there was, you know, bigger, cooler things. You know, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's like, oh, we, we got new strings. What are these? You know, right. Korg. It was, you know, I I, I kind of stuck my hand into places. That I wasn't being paid to stick it because I was a professional musician right. for as long as I was. You know, people, you know, would ask my opinion or, you know, one of the cooler things I got to do is when <clears throat> Marshall used to be a Korg and when we unveiled the Kerry King amp. Oh, yeah. I remember asking you yeah. about that. You put up a video of oh, man. yourself like kind of ripping through something on it. And I was like, what the fuck is yeah, that? Yeah, that thing. I, I still have, I have a prototype that was gifted to me by... Uh, Nick Bocott uh, of Grim Reaper fame. Yeah, he worked for Marshall at the time and he worked in our building. And um, But he put together a band for the national sales meeting and we did like a Slayer medley to un unveil the Kerry King heads oh, to, to our sales organization. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Those heads are wild. They're, they're completely fucking nuts. Yeah. The, the, just forget about the, forget about like the gain staging, just the, mm -hmm. the tonality is like... Unreal. Yeah, it's it's one of the best amps I, I ever played. When when I got approached by Blackstar to to play their amps, I was like, this one thing you got to understand is not only is my Marshall that I play now, which was the Kerry King, my favorite amp, it's my favorite thing. Yeah. So you're gonna have to work real hard to get me to switch. Right. And you know, I didn't. Have did you Did you take anything. a sponsorship from them? <clears throat> I did. You did, and yeah. and uh, th so did they work with you and kind of tweak a model to you what you wanted? No, or? they they we they had it all set up in the sound room at Korg, and uh, Anthony Corallo, who plays drums in Sheer Terror, and he's out with Backtrack right now doing their final shows and um, many many other bands. Uh, he's my my muse, my musical soulmate, Anthony Corallo. He worked for me at the time, so we went into the sound room and it was like a fucking. Goldilocks and the Three Bears thing. We set up the first amp. You know, I brought my guitar and my pedal set up. Right. Set up the first amp, and I, we were like, eh, I don't like this one. You know, then we went to the next one. Right. 
set that up, played it. Uh, this one's a little better, but I still don't like that one. Right. Then literally the third one, <clears throat> uh, it's it's a all tube two hundred watt head oh, wow. with like three channels with a super overdrive and all sorts of stuff like that. We plugged that in. And it was like you know the the cord from fucking what's that movie? Back to the Future. I was like, oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> it just flew you. And, back. and we're, we're like. <laughs> Like, whoa. <laughs> so I was like, I want that and that. Right. And you know, they they, they gave me a setup for for a, for years. Right. And um even when we would go to Europe, uh they would have their they would have their European distributor set me up. Oh, that's with awesome. an amp. Holy shit. Yeah. They they would because um our booking agency was in Berlin and their European distributor was in Berlin so when the guy would come and pick up the van is it, this is for Kill Your Idols or Sheer this Terror? This was Sheer or? Terror. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, Alex uh, our tour manager one of the best guys I've ever known in my life um, when he would pick up the van he'd go over to the distributor and they'd give him exactly what I asked for. And That's I would, insane. Yeah. Yeah it was pretty cool and then when I left Korg this is this is a good shit talk story. Uh, when I left Korg, I don't have any of those on these yet, so this is great. This is wonderful, especially because it's nobody I know, so that makes it great. Yeah, um, you know, you know, I told the Black Star guys I was leaving. They're like, "Oh, well, we'd still like to take care of you." Blah blah blah. I was like, "Oh, that that would be wonderful," you know, because it it really is. The Black Star amps are just absolutely brilliant. The 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 tones because. The guys who made all the coolest martial amps in the 90s are the guys who started Blackstar. Oh, get out of here. Yeah, like the guys who did like the 4100s and things like that. They, they started Blackstar. Those, those uh, Jimi Hendrix reissues oh, and stuff, man. those guys? Crazy, yeah, yeah, yeah. crazy shit. <clears throat> so, you know, my, my boss at the time comes to me and, you know, she's like, okay, uh, we need to talk about your amps because it, it was loner stuff, you know? Uh, do you still want them? I was like, well, yeah, I'd like to to hold on to him. I, she's like, okay. She's like, we figured 2000 is a fair price. I was like, fuck off. Like, really? Like, I, I was here for, for 13 fucking years. I didn't get a review or an increase or a bonus for the last three years of that, no matter how much I fucking hustled, complained about it, and yeah. no matter how, you know, they were sending me all over the country. You know, we also had facilities in California and Toronto, so I had to go there. I had to be away from home, be away from my family to do this stuff. And yeah, I was getting paid for it, but, <clears throat> you know, I, I did a lot of stuff, and I wasn't compensated for it. Right. You you would have think, you know, I wasn't asking it to, to own it, but it, it was an indefinite loan. Right. And they were like, oh, okay. And they're like, oh, but make sure before we give you your last check, make sure you bring the amps back. I was like, eat shit. Um, so eventually, <clears throat> fast forward to uh, last year, uh, I still have a, a dear friend uh, who works at Korg. He's actually one of the VPs now. He hooked me back up oh, that's with awesome. an amp like here. You deserve that. So, oh, that's awesome. I, I, I have one again, and it makes me it really. It wasn't happy. really a shit talk story. It was more like a story <clears throat> that worked out well. Yeah, I yeah. guess it did. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, fu fuck those people who so wanted to charge me too That, that kind of brings up an interesting concept that I think about all the time, right? Like, so, like, I don't have a job where I have to travel anymore. Like, you know, when I used to do tattoo conventions, that mm -hmm. was the only traveling we did. But, like, um, you were saying, like, they, they would ship you out to their other facilities, and you would have to take. Now, there's a difference between being paid for your time and being compensated for your time. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, and I don't think a lot of people realize that. So, like, if you're one of these people, you're making a living, but the company decides they're going to fly you out of town, 
and make you do X, Y, and Z in this other facility, which is actually somebody else's job. Right. Right. Like, they're actually not compensating you. They're taking you out of your element. It's yeah. not just the hours you're at work. Even if they are paying for a hotel and your flight and stuff. Right. You know, you're out of your home for days at a time. So, like, I kind of I kind of wonder, like, what... Were there any bonuses for that? Like, did they ever decide, like, since you were out of town for the weekend, we're throwing you an extra couple of hundred bucks? To... <laughs> no. Yeah, right. No. See, that's what I mean. And and my work would, was still piling up on my desk at right. home. Like, I, I, had a, I had a laptop... <clears throat> that the company had given me that I could VPN into the system and do things that I needed to do anyway. But I was really, you know, the people were like, oh, what are you complaining about? You're going to California, you're going here. I'm like, I'm going to California. I'm staying in a hotel, yeah, but I'm getting picked up in the morning at 6 o'clock, and I'm in that warehouse, you know, depending on what we're doing. If it's just regular stuff, if it's just me checking in, I'm there, you know. 10, 12 hours a day, and then I'm just going right back to the hotel, hotel right. and going to sleep. Or if I was there, the, the first inventory they did out there was such a fucking disaster that the um, <clears throat> the auditing company wouldn't accept it. So I had to go out there and redo the entire inventory. So I was doing, you know, I was getting to the, the warehouse at 6 in the morning and not leaving until 1, 2 in the morning. Holy shit. <clears throat> for a couple of days. You know. Now... Okay, so I don't want to pry too much into what was going on, but th- but this is this is like a, I'm not going to ask you about like overtime and shit like that. Oh, salary, no, so yeah, yeah, that, yeah. See, so like that's what I mean. Like compensating for you for your time versus paying you is the, the two totally different things, right? You know, and I think I think that's this is a big problem with how a lot of people have to deal with work nowadays because like even when my even when my grandfather who was a, a plasterer right he came over mm-hmm. here from Ireland as a he built churches. Oh you shit. Know? So, like, uh, that's how he got his green card so quick. That's how he was able to send for my mother and my, my aunts and uncles and oh, my wow. grandmother so quick. You know, it was all done in under, like, two years, Jeez. which, you know, in the 50s and 60s, it was, that's kind of fast, right. you know? Uh, but if he was at a church and they were like, you're going to work late tonight, they made sure to fucking pay these people. Right. You know, that doesn't happen anymore. No. Well, that's, it's, you know, when you when you sign up, I mean, there's perks to being salaried in, in a job, and then, then there's sure. also... of course. Things that work to your detriment. Hopefully, <clears throat> the perks outweigh the things that are detrimental. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's always the hope. But you know, you can always, <laughs> you know, you always have the choice to leave. You right. don't have yeah. to stay. That's true. So you know, I, I always chose to stay. You know, I, I had, I was making good money. I <clears throat> had good benefits. I had right. paid time off. Right. You know, every once in a while, yeah, I would be thrown a bone with a with a piece of gear that might not be in great shape but that yeah i'll take it you know right so i mean there's things like that but <clears throat> i have a really good story about one of the last times i was in california though uh that that all it all reminded me so my colleague out in california was driving me back to lax and i said um you know you see all these fucking shows <clears throat> like TMZ or whatever the fuck they are. <clears throat> and people are always running into someone famous at LAX. Right. Always. Like, right. like they're just all over there. Well, <laughs> it's LAX. Right. I was like, all these trips, I've never seen anyone. Not one time. Never. Yeah. So and they're like, oh, man. Okay. Like, you know, I was, I was just making small talk. I have nothing in common with these people. So I'm just <laughs> making fucking small talk on a 45-minute drive in LA traffic, you know? Yeah. So uh, I get to the airport this this day. I, I get on my I get on the plane, JetBlue. I had my window seat like I always request. 
pretty full flight. And uh guy comes walking up. He sits on the aisle. There's a space between us. And uh, they finally close the door. The guy taps me. He goes, how cool. We got, we got extra room. I turn around and look at him and I go, you're Dave Lombardo. Oh, that's awesome. Dude. He he lit up, and this is what he said. Holy shit, no one ever recognizes me on airplanes. That was his fucking answer. <laughs> so I'm just like, holy fuck. I'm texting Allison. I'm texting Anthony Corallo. I'm like, I'm sitting next to fucking Dave Lombardo on an airplane. And so I go, I'm not going to be that guy, I promise. But right. first time I saw Slayer was 1985. Yeah, yeah. And then he's like, <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you know, he was super, super nice. But then I started taking all these creeper pictures of him sleeping and sending yeah, them to yeah, people. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. <laughs> one of the one of the nicest guys. But that was so. I guess that was a unintended bonus on, on one of those trips. Yeah, I think I think I forget. Oh, I um. Oh my god, uh, our first time going to Cable Coast, first time going to Europe uh-huh. on our flight. Because we had a connecting flight in Ontario. So we flew from Newark to Ontario and then Ontario direct to Frankfurt. Um, we were on the plane with the singer, I believe it's from Cannibal Corpse. That's it awesome. was it was yeah, so I think it was Chris Barnes and his and his agent. <laughs> That's great. And so it was like and, and it wasn't they were not flying first class. Like they were in economy with us. You know what I mean? They were in coach. So like like me and Derek are sitting there next to each other, like all giddy, like <laughs> That's fucking great. So somebody goes over to him. It might have actually been Sharon. Somebody goes over to him and is like, these guys know who you are. They think you're fucking awesome. You know? Like, and he just goes, <laughs> typical <laughs> Sharon. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forget. I think that's who it was. I believe it was Chris Bond. That's but, fucking um, cool. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's about the only, like, famous guy on a, on a, on a plane story I ever have. I mean, I've run into famous people in other places. I think, I think. The, my favorite famous person in a in a play story ever was uh, I took my ex wife to a play, mm-hmm. and we went to see some production. It was an off Broadway production. It was like whatever, and uh, David Duchovny was there with his wife. Ah, that's awesome. And we're on we're online at the bar at the intermission, and he comes over and like he's trying to walk by her. And like she's, you know, she's kind of not paying attention. So he just like puts his hands on her shoulders, and is like, "Excuse me," like, <laughs> and and she moves to the left, and like I'm like, "Whoa," you know, um, that. And I met Bruce Willis at a different play. I think plays are the place where I meet famous people. That's not, awesome. Not Dave, David Duchovny <clears throat> has something to do with the Daddario Foundation. Get out of here. Yeah, and he was supposed to be in the office one day. That wasn't even an intentional callback. Look and at I, that. I was fucking freaking out because I'm in a different building. We have six buildings within a couple of block radius. I, I'm a few blocks away, and I was like, I have to meet Andrew Mulder. I have to meet Andrew Mulder. I have to meet <laughs> yeah, Andrew yeah, Mulder. Yeah. But he, he wound up not coming. But uh, Brian Meehan, if for some reason you ever wind up talking to him. I would love to have him in. I he love Brian. has so some of the best fucking famous people stories you'll ever hear in your life. Does he, is he one of these? Because he <clears throat> strikes me as the kind of person who would just do weird shit because they're famous. Well, he, he just, he, 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 Brian means them. Okay. That's all I can really say. <laughs> so he just gets witty. You know, <laughs> or like, he'll just be, I'll tell one story. Okay. It, it's a shame to tell more because there's so many of them. He saw Kareem Abdul-Jabbar somewhere in the city, right? Okay. He goes skateboarding up to him. He goes, hey. 
He's like, yeah. It's like, you're Arnold Jackson's teacher. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. And then he just skated he away. Just skated like, away. <laughs> something. I'm sorry, Brian, if that's not correct, but I'm pretty sure that's how you told me. This well, now story. I have to have him in so we can tell some stories. He's got a lot. That's, he, yeah, he's yeah. got a he's got a lot. Uh, on one sheer terror trip, we were at the airport. We were in a bar before our plane, and some guy comes over to us because he saw we had instruments. He's like, oh, you guys a band, blah, 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 yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, I play in a band too. And, and we're like, oh, cool, what kind of music? He's like, it's kind of like funk soul music. We're like, that's awesome. And um, lo and behold, he, he's walking with us to our gate, and he's like, all right, there's my guy right there. And George Clinton is sitting there. No <laughs> yeah. fucking way. We were like, whoa. <laughs> you know? Just weird shit like that. It kind of just guy, happens. I did take a plane with Stevie Van Zandt. <clears throat> That's awesome. Yeah, they, it was by accident. It was actually on my honeymoon. We were oh uh, shit. <laughs> we were uh, yeah. We were uh, we were going out to Hawaii, and we got into the President's Club because my uh, my ex wife's aunt and uncle were like frequent fucking travelers, right. you know. So like we got in back there, and he was just hanging out, and I was just like, "That's that's kind of awesome." He's that that he was cool. like anybody that walked up to him. He was like, no, <laughs> he was very cool. I gotta say that. Like, I would expect a guy that well known and that busy because you know it was while the Sopranos was going on still. I guess was it or it was right after. Okay. So so like you know he's touring with Bruce Springsteen and being an actor. Did you ever watch Lillehammer? Yeah, that was great. <laughs> That's my favorite thing he's ever. Oh done. my god, I didn't stop <laughs> laughing. Yeah, that, no, that that was one of those shows that you would put it on and you wouldn't know whether to laugh or cry during the plot. But <laughs> yeah. like every single scene, there was something to make you laugh so hard you had to like, you, you had to stop. Yeah. yeah, That's really. I have one more famous people story, then we can get over it. Allison <laughs> and I went to <clears throat> the IFC theater to see the Pulp movie. Uh, big, huge Pulp fans. Oh, awesome! <clears throat> and. Uh, Movie was brilliant. If you haven't seen it, I think it might be on Prime right now. Or I have it, but I'll check it out. It's really yeah. amazing. And uh, while we're waiting to go in, another movie is emptying out, and uh, this giant man comes walking out. It's Ron Perlman. Oh, get the fuck out! Yeah, and you know we were like knee deep in Sons of Anarchy shit at that point. We yeah. were like fucking a. And she's like, "Oh my god, Beauty and the Beast!" And uh, so he's walking, and he's got people following him. So ah, your mother's ass. Um, <laughs> You're right. Yeah, I'll, I'll live. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot more other things that hurt more than that right now as we're sitting here. Um, and, you know, he's walking, he's being kind of like bombarded by people. And huh. I'm staying, I'm staying away. I just think it's cool, you know. Yeah, yeah. He kind, we kind of make eye contact and we give, the, we give each other one of these. Good the nod. New York nod. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was the coolest shit. Well, that's, that's <laughs> actually my Bruce Willis story is something nice. like that. I, 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 went to, uh, I went to play with my mother and my sister. This is like 97 98. So he's there with his daughters. Right. And so they're young at the time. They're like in their teens at the most, you know, maybe even a little younger. And um, I see him as I'm passing the bar to hit the bathroom. And I just look at him like, oh, it's Bruce. And I just walk by. I'm not going to stop and bother this guy, you know? Yeah. Go to the bathroom. I'm walking <laughs> back. He's still at the bar buying his daughter's sodas. So this woman in front of me just stops dead. In, in, and, you know, like the, those theaters near the bar, they get cramped real easy. Right. Uh, so this woman just stops dead in front of him and goes, oh, my God, you're Bruce Willis. Oh, my God, you're Bruce Willis. And she's just freaking out going, oh, my God, you're Bruce Willis. <laughs> and I keep tapping her on the shoulder going, excuse me, excuse me, I'm trying to get by. Excuse me. So I look at him and I go, do you believe this? <laughs> and he, he looks at me and he just goes, he goes, 
I get it all the time, pal. Take it easy. And he grabs the girls and runs away. That's great. You know, it was an awesome. It was awesome. It was like it was like I had a little moment with Bruce Willis in my life. That's really awesome. <laughs> that's that's one of my favorite things that ever happened going to a play. That's what that's why I enjoy going to plays so much. Yeah, we we go to a lot. Uh, yeah, we we've been last nine years alone. We've probably been to fifteen of them. Oh, awesome! Yeah, it's a big thing for us. We started bringing my daughter. <clears throat> oh, that's great! You know, my uh, my, my ex wife and I have a very good relationship in mm. terms of like what we do with my kids. So like, uh, we do a lot of life stuff like that with her. You know, that's cool. We brought her to see Beetlejuice a couple of months ago. Oh, I wanted to see like that. right after it opened. That's cool. So, uh, oh, it was awesome. It was uh, the play was great, but she just sat there. You know, I mean, she's a little kid. She's eight years old. She's sitting there, jaw dropped. Amazing. You know, uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I love seeing, I love seeing their reactions to to just things that. I mean, maybe we don't take them for granted. We're enjoying. I mean, it's the arts, you know. Like sure. We're enjoying it, but I love seeing her reaction to something she's never been exposed to before, like that. You know. Yeah, man. The that whole thing of of like uh, kind of reliving. First times through the kids is mm-hmm. great, you know. You got a couple at home now, right? Yeah, I, I have two stepkids. Uh, Emmy, she just turned fifteen, and Justin's going to be seventeen in December. We uh, we took Emmy and my niece Kayla, our niece Kayla, to see Justin Bieber. How awesome! Quite a few years back. I mean, they were tiny, yeah. and that was. I, I have pictures somewhere. I've when he came out. Emmy, I've never seen she someone mind, right? prance in place and scream in joy. Kayla buckled at the knees and started to cry. If she hears this, she's gonna fucking kill me. She's like, like those old those old Beatles. She's videos. A, yeah, she's on a scholarship to Penn State right now. Get actually, yeah, she's awesome. for her freshman year. And um, I've never heard a worse noise <laughs> than thirty thousand prepubescent screaming girls. <laughs> Like, there's pictures of me. Like, I didn't have earplugs. So I went to the bathroom, and I I stuck, like, they may as well have been just full rolls of toilet paper in my ear. Okay. Not because I don't give a shit about the music, you yeah, know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the noise was just horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I imagine that's what it's like, what, what it would sound like if you're tied to the train track and the train is coming, oh, screeching God. into you. Like, that's what it sounded like. So... Uh, so, like, as first reactions, just seeing that was just, see, and, and well, in my face, that was my, you know, I, I was, I'd never been to a concert of that magnitude in right. my life, so, uh, Allison has a picture of me, and I just look flabbergasted. Really? You never did, like, you never did any of, like, the big rock tours? Well, that... I did, but never that, never the, like I said, 30,000 prepubescent screaming right. girls. Yeah, I got you. The little kid stuff. <clears throat> you know, I but the first concert I ever went to was Kiss in 79. You know what's funny? I was going to ask you about Kiss. Love Kiss. Do oh, you really? God. Love. Oh, it drives me up a fucking wall. Love. They do. I, I They drive me up a wall. I was I, six years old in 1977. Uh, I think the age has and something to do with my it. My grandmother, my, my father's mother, Nanny, gifted me with. <laughs> Oh, what possessed her to do this? Love gun. Of all, right. all fucking things. Right. And that was it. That was it. Like, I had always loved music. I, I was lucky. I grew up in a very musical household. My right. father was a drummer. Okay. 
Um, he loved music. My mother loved music. So in the house and in the car, there was always music on. Yeah. In the house, it would be, you know, CBS 101. It was the oldie stuff. So you'd get the Supremes to the Four Tops, to the Four Seasons and all that. And then my father was a rocker growing up, you know. So he, he had Black Sabbath records, Led Zeppelin records, Doors records, Blodwin Pig, Vanilla Fudge, you know. All that kind of shit. Good so I was stuff. exposed to a lot yeah. of music at an early age. And of course, I aspired to be a drummer because my father played drums. But I, we lived in an apartment my whole life until I was 14. So we weren't setting those that. drums up. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I would pretend like I would mimic. Like any anything that I learned on the drums, I learned by not actually playing drums. That's insane. Yeah, because I would mimic it. You know, I would I would set like I had this like little stool. You played. You up. actually played drums in a few bands, right? Yeah, you were in Mudfoot at the beginning. Uh, right? Yeah, I played in Mudfoot. I played in Malcolm's Lost. I played in Force of Habit. Holy I shit, played I in didn't I realize, Bore Her. I didn't realize you played in. Wow. Yeah, I, I knew yeah. I knew you played with Joey. I yeah, knew, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Holy shit! I just kind of picked it up. I, I picked up drums pretty naturally. You know, which which is frustrating because recently I I tried playing again and. And I, I, it frustrated me that I couldn't play as well as I could because you know, I I had a few electric drum sets, right? But it's it's different. Playing them is a lot different than playing regular I can imagine. drums. So, yeah. you know, it's I, it's not like it was even 15 years ago. You know, when Kill Your Idols, we had our own rehearsal spot. I would wake up at one in the morning sometimes with an idea, go to the studio, set microphones up, and I would start just by playing drums and then write music over that. You know, so yeah. it's not even yep. like that. But uh, I always wanted to be a drummer, and then, and then uh, Kiss happened, and Ace Freely to me was the coolest thing on the planet. Right. You know, and uh, so uh, that's when I started becoming I know, obsessed. I know with so many guitar. people. I think I think the age has something to do with it too. I <clears> gotta yeah. I gotta be honest. I really do because like like uh, everybody I know, that's anywhere from three years older than me. Just mm-hmm. beyond that, you can't you, like even it doesn't matter how it doesn't matter how much they're into stuff that I love too. Like Kiss, they love Kiss. I just love Kiss. I, I I can't I can't get over it. It just blows my mind because it's just <laughs> fucking noise to me. Like it just it, me me and uh, Sammy Peralta actually had uh-huh. a fucking running joke online about it recently. <laughs> like like and he was even like. I, I forget what it was. I had some zinger, like one of those like quick one liners you throw out there. But like he was just like he even he was kinda I could tell he was kinda shaking his head and he was like, I know, I know, I get it, but I love it. And that's that's kinda like that's kinda like I just uh, I never got it. I kinda hate what they are now. You know? Well now it's a novelty act. But uh when I was a kid it was there was nothing cooler than when I was a kid, there was nothing cooler than Kiss and Alice Cooper. Right. When I was a kid, see, <clears throat> Alice Cooper, I always loved. I always respected that because that dude, his being over the top, you could tell it was like, no, this is part of the, this is part of the show. Yeah. Like, I'm just being over the top, and for some reason, Kiss never run me that way. Like I know it's part of this show. I know that now. You know, even when I was a kid, I was just like, I get it. You know, and even when I was when I started paying attention to music, when I actually started mm. really paying attention to music. Um, I knew like uh, they weren't doing the mu- the makeup anymore. Right. Like I, you know, I was about ten years old. They had I, I forget what the record was that was out in the mid '80s. That was like it was a radio record, but uh, 
but they, you know, they were just a band. They were just another band. Yeah. But, no, but I, I see that. I, I don't think they would have had the appeal to me, you know, if, say, Lick It Up was their first, you know, it was right. my first exposure to them. I would have been like, what's the big deal? But I was six, and right. they were monsters yeah, and yeah, spacemen. Yeah. And, right. And I was like, oh, my God. So it was almost like the this? Muppets, except they were a rock band. Yeah, that's right. totally what it was. Right. And, it, and it's weird. I think I said something to Allison recently about how fucked up it really was, where, you know, six years old to whatever age i knew every lyric to every song and it was all about like weird sex (laughs) you know (laughs) like there's a song on love gun called christine 16 right (laughs) oh jesus and it's about gene simmons being a fucking creep you know like uh you know i don't usually say things like this to girls your age you know (laughs) you fucking creep Yeah, yeah yeah but my cousin christine who she was my best friend right and i used to love to bust her fucking chops about everything and she hated kiss right and i was like did you know that you were the 16th christine and that song's about you and she was like no like not now you know be you know she's <laughs> now that you're older you realize yeah she's different. 47 i'm yeah. 48 and i'm like oh that's fucking creepy yeah yeah if i you know seven year old me didn't have any idea what a creepy was being at the yeah. time, you know. Again, and then there's a song on that record called "Plaster Caster," <laughs> yeah, which is about okay. Gene Simmons making a fucking dildo of himself to give to some chick, <laughs> oh, you know. But there I was, plaster caster, la 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 la. You know, like I didn't know what the fuck it meant. I'm still not 100 percent sure I know what it means, but I have a little more of a clue, right? And that's fucking weird. <laughs> it is a little weird. It does bring up when you were talking before though about how about how you know because music was important in your family and stuff yeah. like that kind of reminds me of, like you know when I was growing up too my grandfather and my grandmother my grandmother could sing her ass off she should have been like an opera singer like for real but um in our house you know because uh, you know uh, my parents were divorced uh so we grew up in my grandparents mm-hmm. house um when the record player was on TV wasn't on, radio wasn't on. You were paying attention to that fucking record player. Yeah, it was the central. It was the central thing, and it was oh, actually yeah. in the center of the house. That's awesome. Like we had a, we had one of those old style houses where like you walked into a porch or a mud room, whatever you want to call it, and then there was a little foyer after a door, and the living room was on your left, and then it, the dining room and the kitchen, and right at the edge of the dining room and the living room, that's where that's where the record player was. You know, and if my grandfather was picking the records, it was it was the records you would figure, you know, Sinatra right. and Dean and, you know, Sammy and all those records. And if if my grandmother was picking the records, it was, it might have been opera, it might have been an old Irish singer. But my aunt and uncle were also in high school. Okay. And we were very, my sister and I were very close with them, you know, because they're only 12 years older than us. So, uh, you know, we were listening to Blue Oyster Cult. Ah, uh, cool. And... The police, that's Sabbath, really, really cool. and Boston, and you know stuff. There was three records that I, you know, obviously, the auditory pleasure was there. Right. Obviously, the first record I ever remember being completely obsessed with was actually the song "Earth Angel." Oh, you know that idea. song. Yeah. And I had this little Victrola, and I would play it over and over again. I was just obsessed with that. But then, <clears throat> where the aesthetics came in, the visual aesthetics. There, there were three records that I, I will never forget the covers of. There was a Supremes record, and I just thought they were just, as a young boy, I even, I just thought they were these 
beautiful women. You know, I was just really taken back by them. And um, the other one was a Bloodwin Pig record. And it was like this pig head, and he was smoking a cigarette, and he had fucking sunglasses on, right? But the one... That's a deep dive, man. Yeah, man. Oh, these... I can't tell you what the fuck I ate for lunch two days ago, but I'll go back to 1972, and I'll tell you, you know, what kind of feedy pajamas I was wearing. Yeah, yeah. But the one record that had the biggest impact on me was uh, the first Black Sabbath record. Yeah. I remember taking that out as a kid and just being like... "Ah!" You know, yeah, what yeah. the fuck? Yeah. And I put it on and it starts with rain and storming and those, yep. the, the, you know, that G to the octave G to the C sharp. And that was just, that, that did something to me. Even before Kiss came around, that did something to me that I don't know. But yeah. those are the three records that I, that I, that stand out in my memory from my parents' collection that had <clears throat> some kind of, profound effect on me just visually right and then like i said you know that black sabbath record that, that cover is still frightening as hell yeah yeah it definitely it definitely isn't for, especially if you were six when you heard it i mean that, you know that, I, I was probably the, even younger uh, than that you know i didn't realize what it, i didn't actually realize what it was until i was a little significantly older right because i got into ozzy right right so i got blizzard of oz and that was another one that I'd never heard guitar playing like that before. Oh, yeah. So Ace Freely made me want to be a guitar player, but Randy Rhodes really made me want to play guitar. Um, But then, like, I put the two and two together, you know, Ozzy Osbourne was Ozzy from Black Sabbath. Like, you know, I was 11 years old, 10, 11 years old when that record came out. You know, I didn't realize bands changed members. What the fuck did I know? Yeah, yeah. and 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 that was that was just the fucking launching pad. And then my aunt, my father's sister, my aunt Wanda, gave me uh, a nylon string acoustic when I was eleven. And I went to take lessons at Maggio Music in Bensonhurst. It's still there, I believe, actually. Oh wow! And this is one of the greatest gifts anyone has ever given to me in my life. Not the guitar itself, but the guitar teacher. His name was Joe, and the room was like. A, qu- a third of this room. Right. I'm left-handed. So I went in there like this. Held it, right. And he went, no. No. <laughs> Greatest gift anyone could ever have given to me, I got to tell you. Because, you know, sorry, Artie Shepard. But, you know, <laughs> left-handed guitars look weird, and they cost too much money, and they're hard to get. So <laughs> th- thank you, Joe, for making me uh, an ambidextrous musician. <laughs> So I started off with a nylon too. I actually my I started taking classical lessons when I was about eight. That's great. Um, did you take classical lessons, or you just learned on a? I nylon? just learned on a nylon guitar, okay. but I I, uh, I recently found my Mel Bay certifications. Like I got through the first oh, wow. few Mel Bay books. I remember those books. You know, you learned Michael Row the Boat Ashore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know Yankee Doodle Dandy. And then I was like, teach me how to play the guitar solo on a crazy train. Right. <laughs> He's like, well, it's not going to happen on that guitar. Yeah. So my father bought me my first electric, which was a Hondo. Hondo was the big affordable company back then. Everyone had them. You okay. Know? And I had a, a a black Hondo Stratocaster with a white pickguard and this small little amp, uh, which eventually graduated to a, a small little PV. But 
and that's how I started learning. Then I then then the lessons started going out the window, and I wanted to start learning songs. Right at that point, and <clears throat> then I I started to be able to pick stuff up by year. So that was pretty good. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, did you um did you keep up on learning formal music, or you? Just... I did. I did until I was uh, sixteen. 16 or 17? 16. Yeah, until I got hit by a car. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, used, I When we moved out to... St- I just went sideways. Oh, fucking hell. Poor Mike Casey was there for that. Um, but my whole life is a, a series of Jesus Christ that just went sideways. <laughs> um, I took lessons from Steve Maranovich, who played guitar in a band called Cities from okay. Staten Island, and A.J. Perro from, yeah, yeah. from uh, Twisted Sister was in the band. And he lived on Nash Court, and he had this tiny little bedroom in his parents' house. And, you know, he, uh, my friend Don Cronin was taking lessons there. And uh, I, I happened to be a fan of Cities, so I thought, like, I was meeting, like, this rock star guy. Cause right. They had a record out. It was on Metal Blade, you know. And uh, he couldn't have been more than two, three years older than me, you know, at the time. And, and uh, he was a fucking shredder. He, he taught me how to play fast. You know, he he taught me how to like, how to have a really good relationship between my left and right hand when I was playing. Yeah, yeah. And um, he taught me he taught me a lot, and he he had all sorts of like dangerous, poisonous, illegal animals too. Like oh, Jesus Christ! Like, I know exactly the type of guy you're talking you know? about. Like these guys are they're all over Staten <laughs> Island. Like you know, for some reason, for some reason, they have a nest of black widows in an aquarium. <laughs> You know, yeah. and they have they have baby they have they have uh, baby Komodo dragons and like some other you know he had like yeah. piranhas and right. fucking tarantulas yeah. and he had scorpions right and I came into his room one day and, and I those went, lime green scorpions that could kill you yeah you know yeah. and and there was like a scorpion on the bed and I was like whoa and he was laughing because it it molted perfectly like it molted in, in its oh, perfect yeah, shape yeah. Yeah. and he left it there to scare the hell out of me and um. And then I got hit by a car, and I couldn't go to lessons for a month, so then I just stopped taking lessons anyway. Oh, Jesus. And then I just... And, but then in, in, I took some formal training in college. I took music theory, because what the fuck else was I going to take? Yeah, yeah. You know, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I was like, yeah, I'll take, I'll take fun number one and fun number two, <laughs> and, and fun number three and English and no credit math. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, but then from there, by that time though, I was um, I learned everything technically that I had wanted to learn, and um, I just wanted to kind of do my own thing. By then, I was playing in, in hardcore bands, um, and I, you know I aspired to to be some kind of mix between like Vinny Stigma and Piggy from Voivod. Oh, know? that's awesome! <laughs> that's a pretty that's a pretty it's a pretty noble aspiration. Yeah, in that's terms a of lot of that's playing. a lot of skipped years there, you know, the thrash years and stuff. But right. my favorite guitar player of all time is is Piggy, for sure. He he's had the most profound influence on. It's always playing. up there on my list. Yeah, yeah it was up there with Brian Baker and Brett Garowitz on yeah. my list for sure. Oh yeah. man, Brian Baker! When we played with them in the city a couple of years back, he had his guitar boat behind, backstage, yeah. and I was like, ooh. Like, touching <laughs> just him, touching like, it. look, I'm touching him. <laughs> I have a picture with him 
and you don't you, you never seen a more uncomfortable looking dude in <laughs> in your life. I'm like I'm like beaming and he's like, Oh, get this oh, fucking God. gorilla yeah, away yeah, from me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was very nice, very cordial yeah. though. He's kind of he's kind of a he fits right in with those bad religion guys in that he's like kind of a withdrawn dork. Yeah. You know? Like like they're they're uh my friend Sarah worked at Epitaph for a number of years. She kind of ran it for Brett. So cool. Like when he was on tour, like she was, she would basically do, and she would say it all the time. She'd be like, "These guys, so, you just hang out. They're just such nice guys." And I'd be like, uh, "Yeah, tell me about it." That's like, great. Like, like I want to hear the stories. Uh, uh, we went and got a seltzer, and this guy drank tea, and the other guy um, was reading a book about philosophy while we were discussing where to get the best. Like, this is their night out. Like, it's not, like, they're not wild animals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean? it's, it's so fucking weird because, I mean, in punk rock, you know, you, you don't, at least you try to be too cool to be starstruck by anyone. But, yeah, you know, yeah. it, it's hard, you know, people say never meet your heroes and stuff like that. And I, I've been in situations a few times where that was true, and I, I won't talk about that shit. But, you know, then there's the instances, like, when... Um, Bill and Stefan came to record the sleeper record. Yeah. That was unbelievable. You know, you have Stefan Egerton, who's arguably one of the best punk rock guitar players of all time. 100%. You know, telling you you did such a good job and, and like, being really impressed with something you pulled off is great. Or uh, walking around when Toys R Us used to be in Newdorp, uh, I dragged Bill Stevenson into Toys R Us. <laughs> He's like, why are we here? I was like, Yoda. He went, oh. <laughs> you know, and then we were playing songs. Then we, we recorded that record in TJ's mother's house. Right. And, uh, you know, in between takes or whatever, we'd, we'd, like, play Sonic the Hedgehog and shit. And I'm playing head-to-head against him. Neither one of us know what, what we're doing. I knew a little more. And then he just stops. He goes, oh, I'm the blue guy and you're the orange guy. Oh, I'm Jesus like, Yes. <laughs> oh. I, stuff like that is just cool. Or, you know, um, when when Sleeper did shows with Down By Law yeah. and, like, meeting Dave Smalley was a huge deal to me. And yeah. We played CBs. He's like, hey, Mike, do you want to go take a walk? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> you know, we just walked around and we went up St. Mark's Place and I remember he bought a jam shirt and then we got a slice of pizza and then we went back to the show and and then years later... Um, two Man Advantage were recording their first album and I was invited to to go hang out and do backup vocals and he was producing the record and I was like, oh, you probably don't remember me. He's like, Mike! I'm like, oh shit. Like, that's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. You know? That's awesome. That, that means a lot. Yeah. You know, because these are the people that made the songs that made us who we are. Right. No, 100%. You know? Yeah, 100%. And... You know, and I've, I, I've done the speech to all of them, like, look... I don't want to sound like that kid, but yeah. this is what you did for me. Yeah, you know, I, Dave Smalley, I did it to. Uh, you know, Stefan and and Bill. Doctor No was another guy. Yeah, you know, you know when uh, when we played with the Bad Brains at the Rock Palace. You know, I pulled him aside and I was like, I just got to tell you, what's you know what's there to say to Doctor No right. besides? Yep. Thank you. Yeah. That's right. it. That's all you can say. Right. You know, thanks for those records. Thanks thanks for getting me through. Like those, th- there are so many bands like that with this music that like always, 
always meant that to me. And it, it always made me feel foolish when I would go and say hi to them. But I was like, I'm saying hi to them. I don't give a shit. Yeah. You know, like, like, uh, I, I was never shy about saying hi. I was always shy about fanning out. You yeah. know, like I knew where to draw the line. So not to make it weird, mm-hmm. but like, uh, so like, oh, I can make it weird. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Probably, probably my favorite, probably my favorite guy in the whole like hardcore thing that that I have a story about that with was uh it was Chaka from Burn. Oh, right on. Um I met him Seth knew him when I was hanging out with Seth a lot mm-hmm. and you know we met him at a show somewhere and we just hung out all night just the three of us kind of bullshitting in the corner at the show. And it was maybe 6 months later I go up to Irving and it's when he was like working I think he was working the door at Irving or something. But I'm out front, I had gone to the will call window and uh my tickets weren't there, and I was like, "Fuck!" And it was Sunny Day Real Estate in '94. Oh shit! And and I was like, "Fuck! I'm uh, uh, I'm dying to fucking see this man." And Chaka walks up to me. He's like, "John, what's up?" And I'm like, "Hey, Chaka." I tell him what happened. He goes, "Nah, nah, nah," and he just walks me in. Oh, that's cool. And I was like, "Fucking thank you." Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like like you know you 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 meet these people who like in any other music they would be too fucking f- cool for school. Hell yeah. And in what we do, it's just another another kid hanging out. Well, that's you know? what it is, because they were where we were. Right. Before they were who they were. Right. Are, were, are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, the guys from Leatherface, too, that was a big one for me. Like, you had the story mm-hmm. about Down by Law. We... We we uh, our last show the first time Cable Car was in Europe was was with Leatherface uh, in the middle of Germany somewhere and uh, the second time we went we we got to England and a couple of the guys showed up to see us play when we were in Edinburgh and I was like what the fuck are you guys even doing here you you're playing we came to see you play I was like that's cool awesome and the same thing you kind of like you know you grew up listening to these records or you had listened to their records for a number of years and they were in your repertoire and you're just like I can't believe these are like these are just people we're hanging out with now you know I mean it, it, you know it, it all comes full circle you know it's it's crazy to have called some of those people friends yeah like um, you know Todd Youth yeah you know, rest in rest in peace that was uh a, a terrible shock to, to all of us. Yeah. It was right, kind of right after Kill Your Idols did that little tour with Fireburn, too. So that was pretty crazy. But, you know, I'd always said hello to him on and off. We, we've talked here and there. You know, we, uh, Sleeper had played with Murphy's Law in Europe when he was in the band. So we were familiar with one another. And But over the last few years, a couple of years in particular, we became very friendly. We became right. friends. And, um, and it's like, wow, that that's really cool. You know, like this guy who I've looked up to musically my whole life is just sending me texts to like, like tell me a joke or something. And, yeah, yeah. You know, and then uh and then he's gone, you know, and that it was it was pretty devastating. Yeah, I'm sorry, man. It was uh and that's coming up. That 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 year is coming up and that was a fast year. But you know, like I said, you know, he you know, he used my amp, he played my bass and I got to I got to sing as one essentially with Warzone with Jason Todd and Vinny yeah twice so that's just like you know yeah yeah. um but yeah let's get that back on uh rest in peace Todd youth yeah man that's yeah that's rough uh yeah sorry (laughs) 
you know, I, it's, I, you know, I don't want to come across like he was my best friend in the world. You yeah, know, but, but we when, were friends. When, when and, friends go, it's tough. That's and, it. Uh, it. It had a huge impact on me because he was very young. And, you know, we had just been talking a lot. Yeah. You know, and we were making plans together. You know, Vinny was making some more plans with him to do something, and Kelly Rattles was going to do more stuff with Fireburn. And yeah, so hopefully he's in a, a better place. Yeah, let's switch. Let's switch this up. I'm starting to get bummed. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> All right. So let's go on to let's go on to something uh, funny. Yes. Uh, let's do uh, funniest thing that JL ever did. Oh, funniest man. thing that John Lisa ever did while you were. While you were hanging out, because I'll I'll leave with my story if you want, because yeah, I go, have go one. Go ahead, because I okay. Oh, I don't even know if I can <laughs> nail one down. Okay. I have I have my funniest JL story. This is my funniest John Lisa story. So, um, summer of '96, uh, I got I you know I was going to college. I was fighting with my family. My mother kicked me out of the house, and JL was just like, "Stay here till things calm down," you know. So I'm like, all right. And it's when he had the studio. Him and Alex had the studio in his right. basement, in his grandfather's house. You know, he was living there. So uh, I wake up one morning, and JL is hovering over me with his ass three inches from my <laughs> face. And I think, I believe Tony Pernice stayed the night with us there, too. So I'm laying, and I wake up, and he's just going, Wake up, Mr. Farrick, with his ass in my face. And I'm like, holy shit, what's going on? And to yeah, and Tony's like, oh my God. He's about to die. He's laughing so hard, you know? So that was, that was probably my favorite funny John Lisa moment. Ever. I mean, there's probably so many that, I, I, that <laughs> I, I'll probably remember driving home yeah, tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, John Lisa, man, I mean... It's no mystery to the world what that man means to me. I absolutely adore John Lisa. Yeah, I 100% agree. So fucking much. And yeah. he's very responsible for how I turned out as far as my ethics with DIY culture and stuff like that. He's 100% responsible for how I turned out, I think, period. Mm. Because he just had great life advice, you know? Yeah. And all those, all those, anytime we were going on tour, I would call him and ask him, what do I do here, John? You know? And it was after, it was way after he was over it. Like, it was after he had right. moved into Queens and was, like, moving on with his life. And he would still take the time out and just be like, make sure you do X, Y, and Z. All right, I got to go. And he would, you know, like, always took the time out. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> funny moments. I mean... I have so many like blip moments that I'm sure there's a lot more. <laughs> like I remember the, you know, joining Sleeper and and us playing wherever. It could have been the Rock Palace. It could have been Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It could have been San Diego. I don't know where it is, but it was probably local. And just seeing him at the front of the stage <laughs> with his guitar, and he starts to shake. And just snots just start pouring out of his face all over the place. Sort of like Gene Simmons. It was like that theatrical. Like oh, It was like the Gene Simmons bloodshed, but with snots and boogies all over the place. Oh, jeez. And um, this is a good one. I I'm going to leave a couple of names out. But we were, we were in a room with a bunch of friends, and we were all broing down. And, and a friend of ours was telling stories about... Uh, <laughs> Uh, about how his 
a member of his family was getting abducted by aliens regularly, oh, right? No. Oh, my God. So we're all sitting there, and I'm, I'm fully vested in this. I'm, like, down. You know, like, I'm like, yeah, well, duh. Yeah, that totally fucking happened. So then he stops telling his story, and he's, like, emotionally fucking drained, right? And you know the John Lisa look? Yeah. John's yeah, yeah, looking yeah. at him. Yeah. Did they like crinkled and like? Did they like do a lot of drugs? <laughs> oh my fucking god! I mean, look, you can appreciate it because you know. For everyone else, I guess it's a kind of you had to be there. Most situation, of the people but, listening to this podcast know everybody, but so it was they're gonna laugh at it. I think my jaw hit the fucking floor, <laughs> and uh, so similar to what he did to you, he used to do to Jeremy Weiss. I oh yeah, yeah, one time in particular, we were in Chicago. And I think it was at Paul Thibault's sister's house. We were sleeping there. On toward, he kind of woke him up that way, but it was with his front ass, not his back <laughs> oh, ass. Oh, Jesus And Christ. it was like, holy fuck. Oh, no. Oh, my God. <laughs> just, just so many things. Like, just like... <laughs> just like some of his reactions to the stupid shit I would say. Like, yeah, yeah, that yeah. look. Yeah. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I... I would think that I would have so many like detailed stories, but I think there's so no, many of because them. Because everything there. he did was everything he did that was hilarious was instant and then it was gone. It was it was yeah. it was like it was like just a thing, you know? Like the first time I ever went to a Starbucks, he took me. He was like, You've never been to a Starbucks? And I was like, <laughs> No. And he's like, Why not? And I was like, Because I don't drink expensive coffee. I have coffee at home and there's always the deli. Why am I gonna spend Three dollars, four dollars, and you know, ninety six, four dollars was a lot of money to spend on a cup of coffee. Yeah, you know. And he was like, "No, no, I'm buying you a cup of coffee. You're coming right now." And I drink it, and as I'm taking the first sip of it, he's he's looking at me like a puppy waiting for a treat. He's like, "And, and, what do you think?" You know, I'm like, "It's good. It's really good." He's like, "You gonna drink it again?" I was like, "Fuck, this is worth four dollars." <laughs> you know? Oh my god, but. <laughs> Everybody's got really great stories about John. I remember Fallacy and Sleeper went to, we played, I don't know how the fuck we booked this, but we played at the PWAC on Long Island. Right. And then drove overnight. I don't know why we fucking did it overnight to West Virginia to play. Oh, Jesus. So we're like sleeping in the vans, you know? We wound up at some like campsite with a beach or something. And Fallacy, of course, had a hot plate with them. And. And Brick starts making like pancakes or something. Right. And John's like, what are you doing? And Brick's just. <laughs> Brick starts like chasing him around. And, and he can correct me if I'm remembering this wrong, but this is how I remember it. He's chasing John around, just like putting fucking pancake batter all over his own face, <laughs> chasing around. And John finally stops and he's like, when in Rome? <laughs> he fucking does it. Oh my God. But that the line when in Rome, yeah, yeah. you know that that was great. I, there's just so many great stories. I do actually. I I was talking to my car while I was listening to John's podcast because he told the story about me and Alex and and the soldier in Germany. Okay, right. right. Yeah, it it was mostly correct, but not totally correct. <clears throat> the guy who was shutting the power, he started doing it on purpose. Right. And um, yes, I did throw my guitar, but I didn't throw it on the ground. I threw it at him. Oh, get the fuck out! I threw it at the guy, and I cracked the headstock. And no way. And me and Alex weren't 
there was another night on the tour where Alex and I almost got into it because he had had too much to drink. But that night, Alex and I tried to fight all of Germany. <laughs> and the other guys weren't used to that. Right. You know, they, they were, they were guys. nice guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. me and Alex were a little rougher around the edges <laughs> than they were. So we were like, we're in the van and we're like, let's go. We're going back in there. We're going to throw everyone around. Oh, you know, all like 105 pounds of me when I was 20 years old. You know, I didn't care back then. You know, you were always an intimidating guy, though. Like, you always had that, you always had that, like, like I remember because, you know, when I, first I was started, just an asshole. I was, well, we all were. When I first started coming around, I was totally obnoxious. But there were definitely people who I would walk around and just be like, yo, they're serious. And you were one of those guys. I was just like, all right, calm down around them, you know? I, uh, I know. I don't know. I don't even know what to say, but I'm not disputing it. But <laughs> I, I've gotten that before. No, it, wasn't like, it wasn't like you were ever a jerk off to me or anything. You were, just, you were just a serious guy. I just knew, like, you know, like my kind of humor back then, I was, I was a little over the top. I was a little much. Let me put it that way. I was a little bit much to handle. <laughs> All right, so we were just waxing nostalgic while we yeah really hit the can and <laughs> grab beverages. But um, so Ludemic now ah uh, the is, fixer. This is yeah this is this is my Ludemic story. It's not a funny story. This is just how small Staten Island is. So uh, in the fall of '95, I started CSI, and like you know I don't have to take any remedial classes. I'm I'm not. Um, like subject to them based on their testing or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just uh, I opt to take it because I'm an idiot and I'm like, why not waste the time and take a remedial? <laughs> you know, it happens that Ludemic is the teacher of the class, and I walk in the first day and I'm like, no fucking way. That's great. So I sit in the class and like he, you know, he doesn't know me from Adam, you know, but um, about three classes in, he comes over to me and he's like. He's like, did you write this paper? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, all right, hang on after class. And I'm like, all right. And I basically, I wrote a paper about going away for the weekend with my band at the time. Oh, cool. You know? And and he was like, <laughs> he was like, uh, he was like, he started grilling me a little bit, but not like, not like grilling me like in a bad way. And I was like, I know who you are. I was like, you know, like, like Sleeper's like one of my all-time favorite bands. And he was like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> you know, so we sat and talked a little bit, you know? And, uh, you know, from then on, we were very friendly, like, when I would see him. But, like, uh, I mean, I also haven't seen him at this point in, like, 20 years. Oh, shit. Okay. You know, just because, I mean, is he even, he's in Manhattan now. No, no, no. He's he's, he's still in, uh, over on Father Capadano. Oh, get out of here. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, most of our early conversations were about JL. They were <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know... Uh, Everyone has had many, many an experience with jail. Lou and I, <laughs> we we were pen pals. Yeah. Um, which is fucking crazy because we lived probably, you know, a three-minute drive from each other. Neither, I mean, we were teenagers. We weren't driving right. yet. But uh, I, I don't remember. I probably wrote to him about our gang. Right. Because he was in our gang. Right. And... Um, and that's how we became friendly. And then we ran into each other at our music center. He was with Russell Berry. And we started talking and hanging out. And then um, he invited me to, to go see our gang at the Pyramid Club with Token Entry and Hogan's Heroes. Oh, wow. I was going to anyway, but it was cool, you know. And got to know him. 
and he's been one of my best friends since, really. You know, um, I, I still talk to him semi-regularly. I have uh, quite a few pieces of his original artwork in my house. He actually inspired me to start drawing a little bit again, and I've, I've given him pretty much every single drawing I've done. Oh, that's awesome. Except for one. Um, and because uh, he inspired me to do it. He's like, you should do it, you should do it. I was like, I don't know what to do. He's like, draw the devil. So I drew the devil, and then I <laughs> then I, I, I came to Staten Island for something, and I was like, yo, I'm outside your house. Come downstairs. And he came down, you know, probably didn't want to, but he did since I was waiting there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I gave it to him. I framed it, and I gave it to him. I was like, well, you inspired me, so this is for you. Yeah. He's like, oh, my God. And he's like, I was like, uh, he's like, are you going to keep drawing? I was like, I don't know. He's like, draw the Grim Reaper. I was like, all right. So I drew Grim Reaper, and I mailed it to him. And it got lost in the mail literally for like four months. No way. He never got it. I was heartbroken. And then one day it just showed up back in my mailbox. <laughs> and then I hand delivered that to him as well. Um, That's really weird. Yeah. I, I, I always I always found lost mail to be like this weird thing. Like that, Because, like, you know, in the 90s we used to like, you know, everything went through the mail. Yeah. You'd send people records. You'd send people letters. And, you glue and, your stamps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was great. That's up there. I can't wait till I JL. I can't, right. I can't wait till I get Marinelli in here just to talk about the fucking dialer. Marin, oh, my God. I Fuck yeah. every band on Staten Island that did a tour between 96 and 99 used Marinelli's dialer. Yeah. Every single band. You know, yeah, man, I but, remember those. But yeah, there were those tricks: the the glue on the stamp, the the dialer, the what else was some of the shit we? No, did another that? one that that worked for me quite a few times. It was more if it was just a letter, is if you put um, the addressee's name as the return address and your address as the addressee's, and didn't put postage on it and put it in the mailbox, oh, they would just send it back. They would to just the... send it back. <laughs> I did that for a while because you know. It, Pen palling was a big fucking thing, yeah. especially when you were on tour and you met people all over the country. Right. And uh, that, that worked for quite a while. Right. And uh, until, you know, some fucking punk rock sellout got a job at the post office and probably ratted us all out. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's probably, I mean, it was definitely solved by the early 90s because by the mid-90s. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. By the mid-90s, that wasn't happening. Yeah. I had heard stories about that, but it never worked for but us. But the stamp thing was, the stamp thing, you could do that until the stamps just couldn't hold together from washing the glue off of them anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that was... fucking amazing. So so <laughs> willing to save an extra fifteen cents. Because the, yeah. <laughs> they weren't even stamps weren't even a quarter then. Oh my god. They were seventeen cents, I think. I don't right? even remember, but I just remember if I was sending records to someone, I was putting at least three thousand stamps on it. Oh so yeah, 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 yeah. For sure. For sure. I remember getting packages in weird ways too, and I don't know why. I, I, I you know, I, I was doing a distro from like '94 to like '96 mm. or '97, and I would, I would always like do this weird thing with money orders, and like, I, I don't even remember what it was, but it was always some scam to make sure that we saved the money on the postage. For oh the yeah, you know, <clears throat> and and it was like it was all worked out. Everybody had it worked out. Everybody knew what was gonna happen, and. You would just do it, and like whoever was supposed to receive the record would still get their money in order, so they got the money for. But it was the shipping company that was screwing that yeah. money, you know. So weird. No, it's fucking crazy. You know, the price of records. I never put out a record, right? So I don't know what what it costs. You know, I have an idea 
of what it used to cost just from being close to John Lisa. Right. But like seven inches with three dollars postpaid. Right. For the most part. And now it's like, you know, I bought a, a team dress seven inch, their new record, and it was like. I would say seven dollars would be. Yeah, it was 11 total with postage. Right. Yeah, and I was because, totally, I didn't even think not, twice about because that. Because they're not scamming postage. Right. It's $7 for the actual record. Then you got to pad it. Yeah, so they're it, charging you for the actual record. And then it's 25 years it. later. Yeah. <laughs> it's so long later. Yeah, yeah. But it's just crazy how, you know, you know now if, if, you know, if you're buying an album, you know, usually like a, you know, a metal record or, or like a, a bigger band record, like 20 Twenty twenty five dollars postpaid is like oh that's not too bad right whereas like yeah. you know it was like it was like a ten dollar all in, in in thing for years and that was still a little expensive right that's right yeah. you know I you know I bought I a fucking Lana Del Rey double record for forty dollars and I thought that was fair right <laughs> I I don't know what it costs to do a record now yeah but I remember in in ninety seven when I did that. Uh, that delusion seven inch, right? Um, for because I did five hundred at a time. I never had the money to do a thousand, which is always the cheaper way to do it. Right. It cut the it cut the cost down, but for five hundred of those, and to go to the to the print shop, which was in the neighborhood, you know, and you had to find a print shop because you couldn't go to Kinko's. Mm -hmm. the, the, you were never getting a decent record cover at Kinko's right. with, the, with the with those stolen Kinko's cards. That oh I, man, the ten dollar cards, cards, man. Yeah. Ten bucks, and um, you'd get a hundred dollar card. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, I mean, I put zines out that way. I did, I did that too. Yeah. But uh, but I never, you never, you never could do anything decent for like printing a record cover. So like five hundred copies of that record and the covers cost me almost a thousand dollars. Yeah. So like I was, I was not gonna recoup my money. You know what I mean? Like I had to give the band a certain number of copies because that was the agreement we had. Yeah. And, and you know, you're just stupid if you don't in the first place because the only way you're going to support the thing and promote it is the band playing. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I was down to like, so 400 at a cost of almost $2 a pop. You could only sell them for $3 with postage. I mean, nobody was buying a $4 7 inch. It was not no. happening. And if, they would and if you tried, you were fucking crazy. Yeah, if you tried pulling that shit, they, they, yeah. they were handing flyers out at ABC No Rio about you. Right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was not happening. And I remember when Brian Bricks and I had that distro for a little bit, Waka Waka. Yeah. It was called, <laughs> you know, Br Bricks went to do some business with uh, the notorious RTL and uh, Rick the Life. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he was like, yeah, man, yeah, you know, like, yeah, you could take these, you know, CR7 inches, you know, two bucks pop, whatever, you know, you know, sell them for three and... He's like, all right. It's like, yeah, take whatever it was, you know, punch face gold tooth or whatever it was, you know, <laughs> gold tooth knockout. <laughs> yes, gold tooth knockout. <laughs> Me and Ron Morelli's yeah, never yeah. happened uh, thug core band. Oh, dude, I would, uh, I would <laughs> gold tooth knockout. To this day, I would, I would pay a million dollars to see it. Uh, punch face kick neck. Punch face kick um, neck. <laughs> he's like, yeah, you know, uh, five bucks. We're like five bucks, what? How many? He's like each. Like what? Get out of here. Yeah. How are we going to pay you five and sell them for three? Nah, man. <laughs> I was like, yeah. you deal with him. I, I don't yeah, want yeah. 
Well, that's how that's actually how I distro most. That's how I got into doing a distro, first of all. Mm-hmm. But it's also how I actually distributed most of my records. Was I wasn't selling them wholesale. I was just trading. Yeah, yeah, you that know? was a big thing. I mean, it was and it, it was it was such a great DIY network that like if you dealt with just a couple of kids in a few places. You would call a few more, and they'd be like, "Yeah, man, I saw this kid had that record. I'll take a few off you. Do you want this record?" I fell in love with a lot of bands that way. Oh hell yeah! You know, uh, I mean, I mean, there were a lot of labels I discovered that way. Uh, Mike Howard, that used to run Schema in Michigan, yeah, we become very, we became very good friends uh, just because we would always trade records and like you know. you know, the, these weird relationships develop because of the economics of the DIY network. Oh, yeah. You know? I know that's how uh, we wound up with the Ottawa Jihad 12-inch. Right. It's through trading for distro. And, right. You know, as soon as you put that Ottawa side on, and you know, I deny God, you know, yeah, kiss yeah, the yeah, goat yeah. whole thing. It's And then it just, it just doesn't stop. Explodes, yeah. Like, you know, Bricks and I lived together at the time, and we would just destroy the place yeah. <laughs> listening to that record. Yeah. And literally just go ballistic. And, uh, you know, Andrew Lando, when he was doing Reservoir, he was real big on that. John Lisa, of course, was the king of the distro trades. That's how he, I got half my who, record collection in the 90s. He's literally the one who told me to do that. He's, and, um, yeah. you know, Chainsaw Safety was another one. Mountain Collective yeah. was another one. So some yeah. crazy, crazy shit, you know. I'm, I'm so, as much as I'm still a collector of records, I'm so detached from that part of it. Yeah. Now because, um, you know, unless I go to like Holdfast, I don't really go to a record store. That was the connection. Our music center. Well, no. Uh, remember, I was telling you everyone that you've interviewed, there was some like weird story or weird connection. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I couldn't remember what the one. The story Sharon was telling, what that clicked with me. Okay, but I remember when her records wound up at Holdfast. Oh, get out of here! I remember when they were there because uh, because Joe's a, a, an old friend of mine. Okay, uh, the guy who owns it, uh, one of the best dudes. He and his wife and his son are, are some of the best people in the world. Um, I I used to go down there a lot. My mother in law used to have a house down there, so I was down there pretty often. Okay, and you know. I would just go to the record store for hours to as to not deal with the rest of the situation that was uh, that I was there for <laughs> and that's very <laughs> and uh, I remember looking through all these records and and seeing Murdoch records, CR records, Sleeper records, Cable Car Theory records, and it that's when it clicked in my head. That it's Sharon's records. There's no way that was weren't Sharon's records. <laughs> right. <yeah>. So <laughs> <laughs> On the off chance you're listening to this, Sharon, I probably picked up some of my own records out of your collection from <laughs> Joe from Oldfest. Because I do that. I always buy my own records when I see them. Yeah, yeah. Not every time, because some of them are more readily available. But if I see a CR single or a sleeper record or something, and yeah. or, or especially a Celebrity Murders record, I'll I'll just grab those shits. Because they're usually like, you know, 40 cents. Yeah. Or some are shit they like really that. Get at it? No. <laughs> Get out of here! Some of them. I, I've been I, even on even on uh, what is it? <laughs> I, I'm on that I'm on that record collecting app. I buy a lot of records off there now, just recovering my collection because I don't I don't yeah. I uh, when I when I split with my ex wife I uh, I put all my shit in storage. Oh, he had your records too. And and I'll oh, get out of here. No, I'm dead serious. He had called me and he's like, I just got this collection 
from a storage locker on Staten Island. Get the fuck I, out I'm of not even fucking lying to you. There, uh, there's probably still a lot of them at Holdfast. Get the fuck Holdfast out. Records, Cookman Avenue, Asbury Park. <laughs> like, just go. Because probably a lot of them are still there. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not even fucking with you. That's that's crazy. So your record, I I probably own some of my records from your collection. From my collection. Yeah, you yeah, and Sharon. Yeah. Jesus Christ. But yeah, that, that whole thing. Oh, my God. When I lost those records, I nearly lost my fucking mind. Oh, uh, devastating. But, but there's, what, what's the, I, I. I don't know I get emails from it all the time. Who, Discogs? Discogs. Oh, man. Yeah. I, dude, I, every paycheck, I have to, like, I have to, like, so, like, I apportion a piece of my paycheck, and I'm like, you know, I have to spend more than 40 bucks, because yeah. kids got shit going on this month. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, so with this 40 bucks, I'm going to collect this record and this record again. You know, these records that I had for years and wore down. You know? Oh, man, I, I've <laughs> bought and sold so many records over the years. You know, especially being in touring bands, you oh, know, yeah. I, sometimes that's what I had to do. You know, to have money to eat on tour, I would bring records and I would sell them. So then, you know, a gazillion, a gazillion years later, a record that I originally paid $3 for that I probably sold for 20 I'm giving someone like sixty dollars for, and maybe wow. two hundred dollars for. Oh, you know, wow. it's like, but you know, I'm a grown ass man now, and I can afford a record every okay. once in a while. Um, but uh, yeah, I go. I, I have a, record collecting is something that I love and hate uh, so much. You know, I I have uh, obsessive compulsive tendencies, like. Some of them pre more severe than others. And record collecting is a trigger for me. Um, and recently I sold probably about eight or 900 records um, because, you know, yeah, this band is cool, but do I need seven copies of that record? <laughs> right? And look, if it's Midnight or if it's fucking Bishop's Green or... or a few bands or a spaz or something. Yeah, I do need seven copies right, of that yeah, record. I got you. But, you know, just because I like you and your band put out a record, do I need every pressing of it? The answer was yes, but the answer is definitely no. So when I do these big purges, it kind of helps me with my fucking neuroses. You know, it helps. It, well, next time you do a purge, too. make sure you call me with a list. Of I definitely will. But, I, am, I might have one coming up again. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I definitely get it because I, I go through it with other things, uh, things that I collected as a kid that I, not rec I mean, records, obviously, I'm in the habit of repurchasing now, like yeah. you just said. But um, but there's definitely other things I do that with. I can understand that. That's it, it's 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 tough because you love them. Yeah, you do love them, even if it's a record you have like like you said like four or five copies of something like that. Like I, there was a point where I don't. Do you remember that Converge five inch? Yeah, I had three of them. <laughs> there you there go. were only four hundred of them. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> I had three of them, and and I was not parting with them for fucking anything. You know, I mean, like just wacky shit like that. Like there's no reason for it other than to say you have it. But when it comes down to listen, did I listen? Yeah, I listened to my records. I listened to my yeah. records a lot. So, so it wasn't like I was hoarding them to say, look at how fucking cool I am. I have this thing. So I get it. I know. And who cares what records you own anyway? Who thinks right. you're cool because you own records? Yeah, anyway? I, I just like, I like to look at them. Right. I like to admire them. I, I do listen to all of them. Um, 
but it's like it really triggers some shit in me sometimes. Yeah. Like, yeah. I found out today, you know, I told Anthony Corallo, he's in Australia right now with Backtrack, and I, I, I texted him on the Instagrams, you know, figuring that was the easiest way to get to him. Because <laughs> um, Midnight, who, who's one of my favorite bands that I obsessively collect, um, they just put out a whole new slew of merch. So I texted him that, and then I go back and I'm reading, and there's a new seven inch that came out today, and I'm like, "What the fuck?" And there's like, there's five versions of this seven inch, and so I'm had, like, I'm like that. scratching. Yeah. So only one was available stateside, okay. so I ordered that. There were two. That, then there's two that Nuclear Blast Germany had, and I ordered that. One the band has. I texted Jamie from from Midnight Today about something completely unrelated, so I need to have him save me one of those. <laughs> and then there's a red one that I haven't been able to find yet. It just came out today, mind you, and I'm like itchy right. about it. Yeah. I, I'm completely yep. have fucking hives over it. But that that's one of those bands I will always obsessively collect. Yeah. Uh, over the past few years, I've become really friendly with with Athenar from uh, from Midnight, and he he's just a really Wonderful, gracious guy, and uh, Allison and I went to D.C. to see them sometime during oh, the I course of the year. You put up, you put up pictures of that trip. Yeah, yeah and yeah. Uh, so I walked out of the room where the bands were playing, and I hear, "Hey, Mike!" And I turn around, and, and Jamie's there, and I'm like, "Oh shit!" So uh, Allison was outside. I was like, "Will you do me a favor?" I was like, "Will you come outside?" He's like, yeah, of course. And he came out and he hung outside with me and Allison. And I, I brought like a stack of records. And he personalized them all to me. Oh, like, that's awesome. Yeah, like really, really cool, clever shit. Like even like some people were like, why did you do that? Like their first seven inch white hot fire, which I could probably get a lot of money for. But that's that's a record I would never part with anyway, especially not now that he personalized it to me. So yeah. um, I, that, I'm kind of into that kind of shit now. Like I like getting my records signed. Yeah. When Mike Casey and I went to see Jody Foster's Army in Philadelphia, like I brought all my Jody Foster's Army records, and they were just so psyched that that people still loved them so much. I mean, the place was fucking mobbed. Right, people went ballistic. People my age, people younger, people older, and uh, Brian Brannon was just him. Him and Don were just so cool, and they signed everything. Like now, I'm at that point where it's like, you know. I don't want to sign. I don't want it signed so I could flip it or anything like that. Right. I, I want to it's sign it because value. yeah, it's completely yeah. sentimental to me. So before we go, yep. Three Desert Island records because talking ah. about records with Mike D is a lifelong fucking dream of mine. Three Desert Island records and uh, why? I'm gonna have to take my shirt off for this. <laughs> Holy hell! All right. I'm only I'm keeping it to three because we could be here for four hours just talking about this topic. So <laughs> this I'm I'm gonna go, you know, I'm gonna I'm not gonna think about it too much. I'm just gonna shoot him off. Okay. And for a second, Love Gun by Kiss, uh, purely sentimental reasons because it was the record that really really launched my obsession with music. Okay. I do still love the record. Okay. As well, I I listen to it and I love the songs. Uh, that's one. Fuck. Um, oh, oh, oh. Voivod Dimension Hatros. Hatros. Okay. Uh, because. Just because. Yeah, it's I Voivod. mean, it's, it's, it's one of the fun. most brilliant records ever recorded. 
And what is an other one? What is something? I would probably bring the Twin Peaks soundtrack. That is shocking. Because that is a very relaxing record to me. That's really shocking. That's not one I would have seen coming from you. I listen to that a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm more than mildly obsessed with Twin Peaks. I share that obsession with Paul Delaney from uh, Kill Your Idols and Black Anvil and Death Cycle, No More Black good, at all. Listen, it's a really good obsession to have. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a, a minute where I was trying to figure out how to work some of that music into like a a legacy or brutality-ish kind of sounding record. You and McCann have so many similar habits. It always drives me nuts. Really? Just with, yeah. <laughs> because, like, writing music with him for so long, I know every trick of the trade that he has. And it's always shit like that. So, like, when we would sit down, when we were in that band, Den at These, mm -hmm. he, would, he would come up with a part to show me for a song. He'd be like, oh, listen to this. I got this for a bridge. And it's like, okay. And he'd stop playing. And I'd be like, okay, so what soundtrack part is this played backwards? <laughs> Because that's what he would do. He would sit down and he would figure out a part of a soundtrack, either a movie or a TV show, and then reverse the order of the notes, and that was the part. I have a really and great story about him I'll tell you off air. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but he seriously was one of my favorite. Uh, he, he's one of my, the, the people that I've written with that were one of my favorites to write with. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I have a really great <laughs> fucking off-air story about it. All right. <laughs> Holy shit. So on that note, we'll we'll sign off. Mike D, this was great. I'm so glad you came down. Uh, thank you so much. It, it was a real pleasure. I'm really honored to have been asked. Thank you. Oh, fuck yeah. And definitely come back. I mean, as I Anytime, as my brother. house gets fixed, you know, again, thank you to Brian and Jessica. Yeah, Alvin thank for, you so much. Right, Beautiful house. house. For this. Um, but once my house is actually restored, we'll... I'll have you over and we'll, we'll do one proper there. Fuck you, yeah, man. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Much appreciated, brother. Thanks.